0: Even as we are here, Lord, we now surrender our hearts, our minds, and our ears to you, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to us. You would teach us. For you are the, the true teacher, Spirit of God. You said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will teach you all things. Even to your disciples, you said, when you walked on earth, there are many things which you wanted to tell them, but it would be too much for them. But when the Spirit comes, O oh Father, everything is revealed by your Spirit. So even now, we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know, that we might understand that we might believe, that we might walk. Help us, O Lord, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We'll continue back. Okay, it will be slightly different. But we know over the days we've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And we won't be looking from that. But we looked at the order that God has in His kingdom for us now. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Like, for your comfort, this is the order now. In heaven, the head of woman won't be man, okay? Everyone will be the same in Christ, so you can draw comfort from that, okay, sisters? Okay, but now he says this is the order. Okay, so God says... Now when we talk about order, we are not talking about discipline, we are not talking about legalism, we are not talking about any of these things, but we are talking about the way God functions. Because in every kingdom there is an order through which power flows. Okay, power flows. And this is connected with power because the need of the hour for every believer is power. He says when the Holy Spirit comes, He will give you, you will receive power. And that power is that enables us to live the life of Christ or to witness. To be a witness of the life of God, the very life of God through Christ. So we saw the order. Father, God the Father, Christ, man, woman, that's the order. So when God's people come together, this order comes together in the church, how does it play out as a church? Okay. How does a church in which this order comes through, how does it witness? How does it testify? What does a church like that look like? Is there any such church in the Bible? You see, when Paul mentioned about one particular church in the book of Acts, he mentioned about a church called Beria. Remember in the book of Acts, it says the Berians were more noble than the Thessalonians. That he says in Acts chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Okay, uh, we will come back to that later, okay, that's, the, that's later. Okay, in 1711 actually, 1711, okay, you will see, I forgot to write that there. 1711 he will say that the these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Thank God. This is an NK, NKJV old type of English, fair-minded. Thank God it was not said they were fair and the minded wasn't there. Everybody would go for cosmetics. Okay? They were fair-minded, meaning more noble than those in Thessalonica. That they received the word with all readiness. But unfortunately, there is no epistle in the Bible called the Epistle to the Variants. Okay. So we cannot look to the Church of Beria, the noble minded church of Beria, and learn from them. So we have the next best. The next best is they they were Thessalonica. Okay? The epistle to the Church of Thessalonians. Now we know from church history. That probably is the oldest epistles in the Bible. They say it was written within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. The first epistle to the church in Thessalonica. So in Acts chapter 17, you will see Luke records for us Paul's initial visit to Thessalonica. This is his second missionary journey, okay? When Paul... Timothy and Silas arrived in Thessalonica they spent around 3 weeks teaching preaching in the synagogues if Paul got 3 weeks to teach in a place it's it's a miracle usually he gets beaten up by the third day okay so it's a miracle if he gets 3 weeks okay he reasoned recent- Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 3 will say that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths, three weeks, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Okay, that's what he did in Thessalonica. In response to Paul's preaching, some Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and some prominent women were persuaded by Paul and accepted Christ. But not all Jews that were in the city appreciated Paul. Some became jealous, and since they had money, they hired some thugs from the marketplace to form a mob, and they started a riot in the city. The mob stormed and broke into the house where Paul and Silas were staying. It belonged to a man called Jason. And when they didn't find Paul and Silas in the house, they dragged poor Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, they accused them of harboring men who were proclaiming treason against Caesar by claiming that a man named Jesus is king. Jason and the other brothers were released on bail and the very night under the cover of darkness, Paul, Timothy and Silas were smuggled out of town. This is Paul's story. They, somebody's joke that whenever Paul went to a new city, he never checked for a hotel. He looked where the jail was. <laughs> because he knew that is where he would probably end up after preaching. Okay. So they went from there to Beria, 50 miles from Thessalonica. When the mob heard they were in Beria, they saddled up their camels and headed to Beria. to stir up more trouble for Paul forcing him to flee to the coast and take a ship to Athens to escape their fury, while Timothy and Silas stayed in Berea. Sometime later, Paul was reunited with Timothy and Silas in Corinth, and now Paul was still concerned about the church in Thessalonica. It's a very young church, and he had to leave so hastily. So Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica to find out how they were doing. And also according to 1 Thessalonians 3.2, To strengthen and encourage them in their faith. Okay, So Paul was still in Corinth when Timothy returned with the news from Thessalonica. And it was from Corinth that Paul, they say, wrote both his letters to the church there. So today we are going to study a letter that Paul wrote to a young church. A church he established, loved and cared for. A letter written in response to Timothy's report about this church, both their faith and their struggles. In so many ways, this church was a model church in the apostolic age for all others to imitate. In chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it will say, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. He says, you have become a model church to all who believe the whole Greek area, Europe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. It's like a trumpet is singing. It's like a bugle. It's been sounded forth. Not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your testimony. Now this is not just the testimony of Christ. This is the testimony of what Christ can do through a church has spread all of Greece, all of Europe, everywhere where the church is. Okay, but also in every place, what is that? Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. He's telling Thessalonica. Unlike all the others, he will write subsequently. One church, I don't have to teach anything. To all the others, he will tell them: do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But you, he says, you are a moral church. You have understood what life in Christ is. So we can learn from scripture, from a church, right there in the apostolic age, what made them a model church. Right, We saw how Christ is the model son. The head of Christ is God. How? He came under order. We saw how man, the head of man is Christ. The head of woman is man. we see, how is this church a model church? How did they become that? You know Francis Bacon? Sunday we talked about ham, now it's about bacon, okay? Francis Bacon, it's, not like, it's, it's a famous, very famous British philosopher, writer, okay? He said, it is not what men eat, but what they digest that makes them strong. Not what we gain, but what we save that makes us rich. Not what we read, but what we remember that makes us learned. Not what we preach or pray, but what we believe and practice that makes us Christians. Okay, this is what he said. So, we will just look at the first chapter. It's got really five chapters and the first ten verses, but we'll begin from verse to verse. Okay, and to see how did this church become what God wants churches to be like. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God. The Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The three apostles' disciples and their greetings. Okay. On the first glance, usually what we do is that when we read the Bible, we quickly go through the address. Unless prompted by the Holy Spirit that all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, including the address. If you look at the address, it is called the Church of the Thessalonians, just like in Revelation 3, the last church is called the Church of the Laodiceans. The Church of the Thessalonians, just like in Revelation 3, The last church is called the Church of the Laodiceans. But what a difference. Why? Well, Laodicea is condemned. Thessalonica is commended. What is the reason? Because order is established. This is the Church of Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is a church where the lordship, the headship of Jesus Christ has been established. And through Christ, the headship of the Father has been established. So it's not like the church of Laodicea. It's a church that is commended by God. In Laodicea, when church, Christ is outside... And knocking to enter, in Thessalonica, Christ is the head, and in Christ the Father is the head. It's been established in this church. In God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing you notice in the very address. This is a church where headship has been established, and this church is hidden in Christ, and Christ in the Father. Okay? So there is order in the church. Therefore, they become an exemplary church in the first century. So God says one of the way a church can become an exemplary church, where the testimony of that church, without media, they had no media, no newspapers, no TV, nothing. But this testimony of this church by word of mouth, has reached everywhere there is a church. They have heard about the church of Thessalonica. Because it is the very testimony, witness of Christ himself. So God says, learn from the first letter. Therefore, in this particular letter, you will see a charge from the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul. Which you will not find in any one of his letters. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And verse 27. Scripture 5.27. Not 22. 27. I charge you. By the Lord. That this epistle be read. To all the holy brethren. He says I charge you. Though it is true for every epistle. Because it is spirit breathed. But in this particular epistle, he says, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ that this epistle has to be read everywhere. Why? Because this is a model church. A young church. But a model church who have learned how to appropriate the very power and life of Christ and be a witness. So, verse 1 we saw, the key is they are in God, in Christ. In verse 2. Of chapter 1 verse 2, Paul mentions two things that is from the side of the apostle and the two disciples or Paul, Silvanus and uh, Titus, right? Timothy. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Okay. One of the first thing he mentions is, this is talking about leadership within the church. Okay, There are two things here. We always make mention of you in our prayers. Okay. Which is true. Every pastor, every apostle, if he has planted a church and he's left, handed it over to somebody else. But even though he has left, his heart is always there. He never forgets them. And he will always pray for them. So praying for them is something that's very common. But that's not what he says first. The first thing he says that whenever I think about you and mention you before, the first thing that comes in my heart is thanksgiving, joy, what you turned out to be. Simply like a father or a parent thinking about children. When Jacob thinks about his ten, twelve children, when he thinks about the first ten, all he can think is about sorrow. But when he thinks about the eleventh one, all he can think is thanksgiving okay it's thanksgiving it's joy he says you know what whenever I think about you all I just want to burst into praise God what a church what a church so we understand principles from this that's why scripture says in the book of Hebrews that obey those who have been put over you so that you are not a burden that you are a joy when they remember you before God and Paul is talking about an entire church Not one or two individuals. He says, when I think about Thessalonica, he says, you know, but he can't say that about Corinth. He says, when I think about you, Corinth, I just want to tear. And though I am not there in the flesh, I am here in the spirit and what I want to do is judge you. But what does he say about Thessalonica? He says, when I think about you, my heart is full of joy and thanksgiving. Okay. That I remember you with thanksgiving and I pray for you to stand that way, stay that way every day. So, and also what is my prayer? Making mention in you, in our prayers. One of the things of our prayer is that you have started very well. You are continuing very well. That you will grow in this all the way till the end So he will make a mention about that in chapter 5 verses 23 to 24. Okay. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now you think about that. Does he say that about any church in any letter? No. This is the first letter he's writing to a church and he says, you know, with, about you, I have hope. Meaning it's like a father coming and says, you know what? Pass, okay. Exams are coming, pass. At least try to get a first class, okay? You, nothing short of the first rank. Nothing short of the first rank is expected from you. That's what he's saying. You know what? You. He can sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He says, with you I can tell you. You. You are on the track. Continue that way all the way that when Jesus comes, he will find a church. If he comes during your time, Thessalonica, let him find you blameless. He's able to do that. Body, spirit and soul. Spirit, soul, body. Okay, That's his first two lines, what he's basically telling them. I think about you with thanksgiving, with joy, and you're continuously in my prayer for you. And verse 3. How did their lives reflect the gospel? It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible connected with the life of an individual believer or a church. Verse 3 says, Remembering without ceasing. I remember. Because he's an apostle. He doesn't have a family. He's unmarried. He's a bachelor. He has nothing to get his mind diverted. His mind is on Christ and the church 24-7. But he says, when I think in terms of the church, I always remember you. If somebody comes from Philippi comes, you will say, yeah, yeah, this is the way you need to be like Thessalonica. This is the way they do things. Somebody comes from Corinth, he will say, yeah, yeah, this is the way God teaches you. But remember Thessalonica, that's the way. Remembering you without ceasing. What is that? The work of faith, the labor of love and the patience of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. Three things he mentions. Your work of faith. Your labor of love. And your patience, endurance, perseverance of hope. Faith, hope, charity. He says, I remember how, what, was, what he will write to Corinth years later. These people have already got it without being written. They got it. Whatever he taught them, they got it. Corinth will have to be taught. And we are still learning from that episode. But here they have got it. What it is. Work of faith. The Holy Spirit is telling through Paul that the work of the Thessalonian church was produced by faith. That agrees with what God tells through Apostle James. That faith without works is dead. He says your work is the product of your faith. Which means that true faith will always produce works that are rooted in Christ. True faith will always produce work that is rooted in Christ, in God. Then the question is, can you have works in a Christian's life without faith? Can something beside faith produce works for a Christian? We are not talking about the world, we are only talking about Christians. Yes. Even for a Christian. Guilt can produce a lot of good works. A lot of people, good works, Christians, good works can be based on guilt. Because you did something terrible in the past and God forgave you, you know that. But now you are basically doing these things to make atonement for that bad thing. It's out of guilt. lot of husbands serve their wives out of guilt. Not out of faith. They must have been nasty in the morning. And gone. And sitting in the office, they're feeling terrible. Okay. So they decide. Instead of calling up and saying, I'm sorry, forgive me. And it's over. It's over. There is no penance and all in this. But instead what they will do... They will say, you know what, uh, we'll go out for dinner today. It's called making atonement. Out of guilt. You can do good things. There's absolutely nothing wrong in taking your wife out for dinner. But the reason is guilt. It's not faith. You can do good works out of a sense of duty you can do good works because of selfish ambition good works, we are not talking about bad works at all, good works you can do good works out of envy, Paul says there are some who preach Christ out of envy you see you can actually work the works which are good without faith but you cannot have faith without works When it is the work of faith, wherever you are, whatever your situation is, if it is the work of faith, it becomes a ministry and not a job. So in Egypt, Joseph was in ministry. And in Babylon, Daniel was in ministry from heaven's perspective. It was not a job. Okay? Understand the principle. If it is... A work because of faith, God sees has ministry, ministering unto him and ministering unto the people. Yet it is not enough to have works of faith. As much or even more, it is what prompts your work of faith what empowers it. You can have a work of faith So you will see a lot of people in the Old Covenant. You will see in Hebrews 11 an entire list given about work of faith, work of faith, work of faith, work of faith, work of faith. faith. Yet, in verse 2 says, the work of faith must, verse 3 says, must become a labor of love. It must become a labor of love. The word labor automatically implies tiredness, weariness, pain, affliction, labor. There's a difference between a worker and a laborer. Do they call you IT workers or IT laborers? You don't like the term IT laborers, right? If somebody called you, are you an IT laborer? You says, you know, I am not. I am an IT worker. Okay. A work of faith, yet, some of them are laborers in the IT field there is tiredness there is weariness Okay, but scripture says it's labor of love one can grow weary even doing the most wonderful thing you can grow weary so it has to be a labor of love that's one of the reasons when a mother goes into into not work it's called labor. It's a labor of love. There's affliction, there is pain, there's all kind of things, but it is still a labor of love. Okay? We had once a class in IFLU 25 years ago about whether the woman's labor should be counted as work or not. Crazy stuff happens in universities even those days, as we have nothing else to discuss in a class, right? But that's how... People waste government money. (laughs) One can grow weary, even doing the most wonderful thing. You can grow weary. So the question is, labor of love, but love for whom? Is the question. It cannot just be the love of man. For if it is the love of man, or the love for man, then everyone would be capable of doing this. But the humanist, for whom it is a love of man, has its limitations. Commonist also, which is the love of man, has its limitations. It can be love of self. Basically, you do a lot of good things because you love yourself and you want appreciation. It too has its limitations. It is wired, the love of man is wired to fail in itself. Because ultimately the human soul and the human heart is selfish. So when we don't get what we want, we will walk away. That's the problem with all the charitable deeds in every religion. At the core of it is selfishness. Because many of the things we do in religion is because there are returns in it. Every religion, many of the things which you do, the good things you do for others is because returns has been promised to you. If you do this, you will get this. Here or there. But it's a love of man and it is. It has its limitations. So this labor of love, that's not what the Holy Spirit is writing about. It is the love of God and the love for God Displayed towards man. So its origin is not from man. Its origin is from heaven. That love. God says alone has the power. To sustain till the end. And it's proved first to us. By Christ on the cross. So scripture says. God so loved the world. In John 3.16. I heard an illustration by an old man of God. It's a beautiful illustration. He says, think of a bookshelf. Think of a bookshelf. And he says, there are so many books in that shelf. There's a commentary on the book of Genesis. There's a commentary on the book of Exodus. There's another on Deuteronomy, Numbers, Levitical, Isaiah, every New Testament and other writers. So many books in that bookshelf. But he says that entire bookshelf is John 3.16 which holds all the books that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Take that words out. There are no books. Everything is held together by that. Why is everything happening? Why did God do everything? Because he loved us. And he gave his only son. And it was God's love that prompted his son to do everything. Therefore, on the cross, when he is rejected by all men, it still doesn't stop him because he loves his father. loves his father. You ask anybody over there, everybody, including his mother and disciples, will say, our idea is that come down. the father says, stay up. And he says, I love you, dad. They don't understand. I will stay up because I love you. The scripture is talking about that love. And that love is received only through the Holy Spirit. What happened on the day of Pentecost? When we say they were baptized in the Holy Spirit with power, with fire. One of the power, the real power they were baptized with is not the gift of miracles. It is the power of God's love. They were baptized with the love of God. And after that, nothing could stop them. Because that love of God is stronger than death. When death cannot stop. And that's what he's talking about the Thessalonian church. You had works of faith. And your works could never stop because it was empowered by love. So you labored on. You labored on. Because if it is the work of faith and the love of man, after some time you give up. And he says, oh, it's, it's too much. It's too much. That's why we keep telling that in terms of professions, the largest number of dropouts are in ministry. Largest number of dropouts. Because so many people get into ministry with the love of man. And after some time they are burned out and they leave. But God says, that's why he said, you cannot do this. Wait in Jerusalem. Peter, John, Thomas, everybody don't start, don't go, don't think about the miracles and think you can do it. He says, no, you will not be able to finish this. Wait in Jerusalem until you have received power. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will give you power. And we think the power they received in the Holy Spirit primarily is this power to do miracles. No. It's the power of God's love. He baptized them with the love of God absolutely baptized them with the love of God. They were able to love God with all their heart, all their might, all their strength and love their neighbor as themselves. When they looked at what God has done for them, they said, you know what, I want you to have it. And it doesn't matter whether the authorities beat us, kill us, we will keep preaching Christ until we die. That is what empowered them. That is what motivated them. That is what Jesus said, wait for it. Wait for it. We don't have it in ourselves. We are given that only in Christ and through Christ. So if the works of faith is not done under the labor of love, it's a very great danger. That's the first indictment in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, the first indictment about the first church is this. I know your works. I know your labor. I know your work. I know your labor. This is when I think about your works, let me tell you, your patience, you cannot bear those who are evil, you have tested those who are apostles or not, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary, but I have one problem with you. Your works are fantastic. and are works of faith. But there is an issue here. The issue is, you have left Your first love. Your works are no longer empowered by the love of God. It is not. And therefore he says, I see you stumbling, falling and falling away. The first indictment is not about the work. It's about the way they were laboring. He says, love has gone. And he says, I know you will not survive. If you don't come back to it, you will not survive. And that's why we always advise people, especially in the ministry, when you feel you're burning out, take off. Work is not what is important. What empowers your work is more important. Because you shouldn't you shouldn't be working on for in the name of Christ when you don't love God with all your heart. Go back, spend time with God, be filled again and come back. Because this is not work, this is ministry being a witness of Christ. Any church which is full of works of faith but losing the power of love is bound to end up like the Pharisees. Paul, who was a Pharisee among the Pharisees, will remind us later in Galatians 5-6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but only faith working through Love. The work of faith laboring in in love. He says that's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. Faith working through love. Faith should draw us closer to God while His love should send us to the world. While hope draws us towards His second coming. That's how faith, love and hope works. When our work of faith is towards God and empowered by the very love of God it builds in us an endurance to suffer for Christ. And the church in Thessalonica had suffered. You getting the picture? Now it's very easy to understand in terms of labor. Why does a woman go through labor? Because she loves her child. Though she hasn't seen the child. She loves the child. So she is willing to go through the labor. The pains of labor. That's what he's talking about. Affliction is coming. Thessalonica is going through affliction like all the other churches. Incredible affliction they are going through. Yet, they are not stopping anything. And they are there as a very powerful witness of Christ. Why? Because it is the power of love. In two and verse 14, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, if I'm right. Scripture says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Is saying, you, see, you Have suffered from your own countrymen just as the churches which are in Judea. Where is Judea? Where is Thessalonica? Judea is there in the Middle East. Thessalonica is there in Macedonia, Greece. And he says we know how the Judean churches were attacked. By whom? By the Jews. And he says, you have suffered in the same manner from your own countrymen, but it didn't stop your, your labor of love. It didn't dampen your work of faith, because you were laboring in love. So what kind of hope is this? Are you getting the picture? What he's talking about? That's the third thing he'll come about. He says, you have the work of faith, and you have the labor of love. And when you have the work of faith and the labor of love, verse 3 will say, let's go back to verse 3. Yeah, chapter 1, verse 3, sorry. He says, then you have a patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does our hope come from? Does it just come from scripture? Or is it a real hope that comes from experience? A real hope. There is this hope you get from scripture because you know scripture, memorize scriptures, confess scripture, which is good. But there is a hope that comes because that scripture is alive and living in us. Because there are so many things in which people put their hope in. In money, in job, in family, even in the church. So scripture says, what is our hope built in? It says about patience of hope in Christ. Because you know, if faith needs to have work, and love will make you labor, and then hope needs to have patience. Because you don't know when he's coming, and how long it will take you to hang in there. So what you need with your hope is patience. Nothing. Nothing else can give you that patience that should come with the hope other than the hope that is in Christ. Everything else, anything else you put your hope in, it will not last because you will become impatient towards the end and you will give up. Are you getting the picture? You cannot put your hope in your husband. You cannot put your hope in your wife. You cannot put your hope in your children. You cannot put your hope in the church. Your hope has to be in Christ and Christ alone for it to be sustained. Anything can't be in anything. So scripture says, what is our hope built on? There is only one hope, Bible talks about, that is real and true. This is a hope that is built on nothing missing, right? Less than Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, and finally, and above all, the very person of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 6, we'll talk about that. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuse to lay hold of the hope set before us. Two immutable things. One is the blood, the other is the person of Christ. The blood of Jesus and the person of Jesus Christ. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil. Where does it enter? This is not a hope that is natural, that can be found in the outer courts or even in the holy place. There is a hope that can be found in the outer courts, that is just in the blood of Jesus. Outer courts, what is there? just a sacrifice. In the holy place, what is there? A knowledge of the word of God. In the most holy place is an encounter with the living person of God. And it is to that God calls us. Come boldly, confidently to the outer courts. No, he says. I say anybody can come. To the holy place, he says many in the Old Testament came. The call of God in the new covenant is to come here and meet Christ. And he says, that's where the anger of your soul is. And he says, this church has entered, has a church that have entered in the Holy of Holies and their hope is real. They have this patience of hope in the midst of their reflection. Why did Jesus not give up on the cross? Because his hope was, because he was in the Holy of Holies and encountered his father. So his hope is not built on anything less why is Stephen not hopeless when dying but full of hope because he has entered the Holy of Holies and anchored his hope on Christ himself and here is a church that has entered into the Holy of Holies and found their hope in Christ did you see how what Paul will write later to Corinthians and to all of us a church is living out he says they have a work of faith they have a labor of love they never give up And they have a hope that is absolutely real in the midst of their afflictions. And this is ongoing. Why? Because faith, love and hope is not static. It is ongoing. That's why the writer of Hebrews will tell what... Paul is telling to us about Thessalonica. In Hebrews 6, verse 10 and 12, he will say, 6, 10 and 12, 10 to 12, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. Now he's writing to another church, another set of people. Years later, Maybe Paul, somebody else. He says God will never forget. He's not unjust. He will never forget your work and the labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. He's saying your love is towards God and towards man and because of that you minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, full assurance of hope till the end it is not static he says you have to continue this till the very end and that's what he's telling the thessalonians i have this incredible confidence in you the way you are running work of faith labor of love patience of hope i see god will sanctify you completely spirit soul and body and when jesus appears you will be found Blameless. And he's telling here that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't draw back. Don't get tired. Don't get weary. Don't slumber. Don't become lazy. Don't become lazy. Don't become sluggish. He says continue. Continue in this because there is no static position in scripture. All these, the first three verses, of the first epistle written to the church is charged to be read to all the churches. So the question is, how did the church in Thessalonica become this model church? Right? It's a model church. There's a model believer and there is a model church. And how did they become this? Fundamentals, how do you become this? Verse 4. Knowing, brethren, your election by God. Knowing, brethren, none of you are sitting here saved because of an act of you. You are sitting here because of a supernatural act of God. It begins with God, not man. Knowing this, first thing you need to know, beloved brethren, your election by God. Call it predestination, you call it election, God already knew whom he was going to save. It had nothing to do with us. We had a choice to make, but even before the creation of the world, before the creation of anything, we were chosen in Christ. That's why the people who are saved are also called the elect. Why? Because we were elected by God, not by man. First fundamental, God must choose you and me. Salvation always begins with God and not us choosing him, but him choosing us. That should give you hope. When you are struggling in your failures, struggling in your temptation, struggling in your sins, you must always take hope. I did not choose him. He chose me. And if he chose me, he's not going to leave me a failure. He will finish what he started. On the other hand, if I chose it, I have to struggle, 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 never being sure will I make it. But God says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't. I chose you. On the divine side, remember, salvation begins with God in eternity. On the human side, the gospel came to you and to me as to them. How did it came to us? And to them, how through the message of preaching, not simply with words, but also with power, and the Holy Spirit—that's what He will say. For our gospel did not come to you in word only; it didn't come with a word only, but also with power, and in the Holy Spirit, and much assurance. Here assurance mixed with much conviction, deep conviction. So lest we become unbalanced saying that salvation I don't have to do anything everything is the work of God God says hang on that's not what I said salvation is the work of God but you are not going to get saved unless he uses a human instrument to bring the message to you and you respond to it it's a human side to it he says our gospel did not come it came to you your election was in God how did you know that Because it came to you through men, but not in words, alone, but in power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He says, God's salvation was made effective through the preaching of the gospel. Not in word alone, meaning it was not depending on the flesh to convince and to convert. He says, you cannot. That's why two people can hear, even today, the same message. One hears the words of the gospel, the other hears the message. That's why preachers have no power over the sermon. Only God has. That's why Paul says, Paul can only plant. Apollos can only what increases in God's hand? There's nothing Paul can do to bring increase. There's nothing Apollos can do to increase. That's in the hands of the Holy Spirit. That's what God says. My word will never go void. He's telling every preacher, sometimes you must be thinking, all my words have gone void. He says, who told you? Your words will always go void. That is, my word will not. That's what he's saying. It didn't come with word alone, but with power. So what are the signs of true Conversion in Thessalonica. What are the signs? The next verse. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The word was received with much affliction, and yet with much joy. For so many, so many, if you have to receive Christ, it comes with affliction. You stand to lose. You stand to lose. Yet you will know the gospel you received is true and it is working in you because along with the affliction, you have the joy of the Holy Spirit. If you receive a gospel without affliction and suddenly receive the gospel and you get your promotion and two cars and a house that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. From the day of Pentecost when the gospel was preached affliction was promised. You stand to lose. You stand to lose. That's why the church, the true believing church never grows without affliction. Because the gospel itself produces affliction. Because the gospel is the vessel through which God saves people from the world. Because it is the message of the cross. And yet received with joy. That's what he's saying. You became followers of us and of the Lord. He says we apostles came. You knew where we came from. We were chased from Beria and we came here. We finished talking to you and we were chased from here and you became our followers in affliction as we were followers of Christ in his affliction. We received with joy considering it to a great honor to be suffer for the Lord. You also received it as a great joy to suffer for the Lord because the gospel is true. So they became followers of the apostles and Christ by picking up their cross daily. And thereby, verse 7 says, you became an example to all in Macedonia and Achaia. There are other churches where there is not so much persecution. And they are looking at you and wondering and said, you know what, that's what we want to be. When our hour of persecution comes, when the day of trouble comes, we want to be like Thessalonica. You became an example to The other churches. And not only the other churches in Greece, verse 8 says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Why? The word of the Lord went from Macedonia. The word of the Lord went from Corinth. The word of the Lord went from Ephesus. But the word of the Lord that went from Thessalonica was more powerful than everywhere because it was forged in fire. Therefore they looked at him and they looked at that church and said you know what the gospel they are preaching is true because they are living it in the midst of their fire. There were many 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 sons of Judah in Babylon only four had a testimony. They were all sons of Judah. They were all sons of Judah. There were many many churches at that time but Thessalonica from them it went forth with power. Went forth in power. Why? Because the very power of God was being manifested in their affliction. The Roman centurion on that day, he would have probably had been witness to so many crucifixions because that was a form of death penalty in Rome. How many crucifixions he must have witnessed. But he had never seen a crucified man react like this. He had never seen before Christ any person react to the crucifixion like that and his response towards God and man. And when he died he said this surely is the son of God. When Thessalonica was sounding for the gospel it went everywhere because your faith toward God has gone out. They knew their faith was real because in affliction They refused to buckle, they refused to back off, they refused to go in hiding. They stood there in their affliction and preached Christ. And the word of God went everywhere to the point that Paul is saying to you, Thessalonica, you, I'm writing the shortest of my epistles, just five chapters, maybe around 40 verses. Because I don't have anything to say to you. I don't have anything to tell you. What do I have to teach you? Nothing. I don't have anything to tell you. The second letter I will write saying that please don't hope because some other crooks have come over there and says rapture has already taken place. Don't lose hope. Nothing has happened. You run your race. I am still here. That's why Second Thessalonians is written. Okay? Because if... Nothing, the church is running so well under affliction, the devil cannot do anything to him, he sends few people to say that, why are you running, rapture is already over. Can you imagine? So Paul writes to them saying rapture hasn't taken place, you keep running. We do not need to say anything. He says, you are good. Really, he's saying as a father to his children, he's saying, you know what? I'm really proud of the way you are running your race. Your faith towards God has gone out. So we come today to the crux of the matter. How did this happen with a church in the first century? If it can happen with them, it can happen with anybody or any church. The last two verses of the first chapter will give us the clue. Verse 9. For they themselves declaring concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. He says, you know what? One thing everybody talks about. Your repentance was 180 degrees. When you turned, you turned all the way. That's the reason for your power. That was the reason, is it? How did it happen? They turned completely from their idols to the living God. All the cities are full of idolatry which touches every fabric of the society. The society is built on idolatry. Everything. They turned from... That's why the affliction has come. Like now... Many people in U.S. are starting to understand what it means to share in the afflictions like the church in Thessalonica. Imagine, because you don't have trades like today, imagine your trade is to make statues. And you, are, you make statues for fish, for a, for a park, or for a garden, or this thing. But most of the orders before you got saved was to make statues of Greek gods. of your merchandise was that and suddenly you got saved and you're saying, I can't make it. It's against what I believe. What do you do? That's what happened to us, right? When Baker said, for a gay marriage, I'm sorry, I cannot bake the cake for you. It's against what I believe. They sued him and he lost his business. God says, learn from Thessalonica. It's coming. It's coming. Idolatry is coming. And they will make you bow before the idols so you lose your business. And he says, will you share in affliction and still have the joy of the Lord? Are you getting how these things are written right in the first century so that through these centuries it will play out in the lives of different kinds of people? He said, this church refused to compromise. They said, it's okay. We'll go through affliction. We lose some of our businesses. That's fine. We are turning from every idol. That is what repentance is. That is what true conversion is. It's a turning away from idols. Now we don't have idols like that. But we have many other idols. And God says. As you hear the word of God. And the spirit of God. Start showing these idols in your life. Are you turning away from that? And turning towards the living God. Because that's what repentance is. It's a decisive change in direction constantly in life. Because once we served sin and self. Idolatry. Sin and self. They're companions, twins. But now we serve the living God. Once we bowed down to the idols of this world. Now we serve the living God. And there is much affliction in it. And Jesus said, when you do it, the world will hate you. It's an old song in English saying, you got to serve somebody. You either serve self or you serve God. You cannot serve both. You cannot serve both. Serving of self is idolatry. That is why God commends first the work of faith. Because works can be motivated, good works can be motivated other than faith. But all those works is what? Idolatry. If you are doing good things because of guilt, what is the idol you are serving? Guilt. If you are doing good and wonderful things because of envy, what is the idol you are serving? The idol called? Envy. If you are doing incredible things because you want to be known as a philanthropist, what are you serving? The idol of self. They are all good things. Nothing is, everybody is getting blessed by it. That's what Thessalonica did first. They turned from their idols. Salvation on the human side is a continuous turning from the idols as the Holy Spirit shows. And that's not enough. From there, turning from the idols to serve the living and true God. There's only one God that's living and true. There are many living gods, but they are not true. Little gods. Scripture says there are many gods. They are living, but they are not true. There's only one living and true God. And to worship that, turning from and turning to it is intentional it cannot happen accidentally nor can it happen automatically nor can anyone else turn you towards that each one alone must make that decision like Daniel did he took it alone he never forced anybody he says will you two stand with me then I will stand up he didn't say He stood up alone and the other three got a little courage and they also stood up. One became four. But the others didn't. They were not willing. For no one just follows an idol. They serve it. In the same way, nobody can just follow God. You have to serve him. That's the problem. That's the first thing God told Moses. Go tell the Pharaoh. This is what I say in Exodus 7 and verse 16 and 8. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, Let my people go. That they miss what? They didn't want to serve him. They only wanted to follow him. They wanted to follow him, but serve the idols of Egypt, which were there in their heart. God says, learn the lesson from history. There are so many even today who want to follow God to heaven, but while here serve their idols. God says, no, that's what I told them. What I told them is, let them go, 8-1. And God spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve him. That is true salvation. Salvation. Israel wanted to follow Moses and God, but serve Egypt. That's why even as they followed Moses and through Moses following God, all they could think about is Egypt. And even the tiniest little they thought became a stumbling block because it was an idol. Even that's why scripture says evil things. What are the evil things? How can cucumber be evil? How can leeks become evil? Because They were not serving God. They were just following God. And this became stumbling blocks. So many things, little things. In itself, idols are neutral. Every idol is neutral. You and I give it power. So the smallest little thing can become an idol in your life. Like a cucumber became an idol for 600,000 people. It stopped them from serving God. For 40 years they were following God. In circles. They never served Him. Because they had idols in their heart. And The history of the church is also true. So many people follow God Sunday after Sunday, week after week. But the question is, God says, do you serve me? Israel never learned the lesson that they were set free to serve him. It is if you don't serve me, it is not that you are not saved. You are out of Egypt. And the forces that are after you have been destroyed in the waters of baptism. But you will never ever experience the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation is experienced only when you serve him. They never did. Moses did. Moses enjoyed the joy of salvation, yet he is the one who actually lost in worldly terms. But he enjoyed the joy of salvation because he was serving God, not serving any idol. Israel should have learned from their own history that there was one in their ancestry who had done that earlier. It was their great grandmother called Rachel. Who followed Jacob and his God. But served her father's idols. And God said. You will die. You will die. That's why the church in Thessalonica had a testimony. What was their testimony? They had turned from their idols. And they didn't just follow Christ. But they served Christ. They served God. That is what Israel also was asked to do. Serve God in the wilderness. For us, this world should feel like a wilderness. Is it a wilderness? Honestly. Adhan sent on purpose. Every time you go out in the world, you should feel. You just want to get back home. It's a wilderness. Who likes wandering in a wilderness? This is wilderness. For us, that's what Peter will say. We are pilgrims, aliens in this wilderness. We are here, why? Because God wants to serve us. Otherwise He would have taken us the day we got saved. He said, no, you serve here. Serve me here in this wilderness. There are people all caught in this trap of this world, which they don't realize is a wilderness. You need to save them. Instead we get so entangled with the world, they have no idea we are saved. Because the foundation of this world is the idolatry of self, which permeates into every aspect of society. And that's why God's children, in the 21st century above all, even though we have everything I and mine can think of, are still not happy. Why? Because we have idols in our heart and we never left it to serve God. To be a Christian may often mean rejecting everything that is not built on anything else other than Christ. That's what God calls men to do. And that's what the church in Thessalonica did. So even as we labor in love, in this world, we have no hope in this world. We have no hope in this world. Verse 10. We have no hope in this world. What are we waiting for? What they are waiting for. What are they waiting for? To wait for his son from heaven. That's what they are waiting They are working in faith. Laboring in love. Patient in hope. They have turned from the idols. Towards the living God. And this is what they are waiting for. They are waiting for his son from heaven. Therefore to the Corinthian church, the most cardinal of the churches, Paul will have the harshest word to say. Like, what is that? If anyone is not waiting for Christ, let him be cursed. He's not writing into to the world. He's writing it to the church. You're sitting in the church and claim to be the bride of Christ and he's not waiting for your bridegroom. Be cursed. Accursed, he says. Be accursed. And he says, look at this church. reports I heard from Timothy he says makes me so glad this is what you are waiting for you are waiting for a son from heaven what are we waiting for what are we waiting for we will wait for whatever our hopes are tied up with some people are waiting for a breakthrough which is good a bad thing. But if that is your ultimate hope, some are waiting for a spouse. It's not a bad thing. Some are waiting for a job. That's not a bad thing. These are all temporal. As long as you keep it temporal. But here is a church in the midst of affliction. They were laboring, working, yet waiting. Yes. Serving God and waiting. As yes, I close. You know something about this church? Do you know fundamental principle in the kingdom of God? Serving and waiting go together. Serving and waiting go together. They may, may sound surprising. Serving is active while waiting may sound passive. Yet, These two are compatible. And they complement each other. God says, even as you serve, wait. Even as you wait, serve. Don't make the mistake of saying, I will not serve, I am just waiting. God says, don't be foolish that you are serving, 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 that you are not watching and waiting. So he will comment in that chapter where he talks about the last days. He'll talk about one servant in Matthew 24. And we shall close. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing. That's enough. The master came. What was the servant doing? He was faithful. He was serving. Yet he was waiting. So the master never caught him by surprise. He was serving and he was waiting. What about the other fellows? 47. As surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But the evil servant, he's also a servant. He's also a servant. Evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. So what will he really do? And begins to beat his fellow servant. He starts fighting with everybody. To eat and to drink with the drunkards. Meaning he gets involved with the world. Loses his watchfulness. is too entangled with the world. And the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. He's not watching. Therefore he was not serving. At an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Church in Thessalonica was serving and watching. The first ten verses God tells us, you know what, that's the church from the first century and that is an awesome church. That's the first letter, they say, epistle that is written in the kingdom. About what a church should be, a model church should be. So if Thessalonica was so good, wonder what Beria was like, right? <laughs> what would have been the Berians be? We don't know. Thessalonica, because Berians were supposed to be more noble than Thessalonians, right? Paul says. But that doesn't matter, you can always overshoot even the Berians. You don't have to. These are all models. We think While reading scripture, Paul and Peter and all of them has the great ones. We don't know. Only that day will reveal who were probably others greater than them in the way they ran their race. Nobody knows. Nobody knows who are those. Nobody knows. On that day it will be declared. There might be some from our age who are greater than the apostles in their faithfulness, in their love, their patience, their labor, and their affliction and their suffering. Oh, no, So we run this race. Remember these three words. What is that? Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. Okay, shall we pray? Father, this evening we just thank you, Lord. We just thank you. When your order comes into our lives and we work in that order, this is what will happen in each life. It would be a work of faith. A faith that is towards God and a work that is empowered by God and glorifies God. A labor that is in love. A labor you will never forget. And out of it, O Father, I pray in each heart will arise a hope. In patience, we will wait for your coming. Watching, yet serving. Serving, yet watchful and not to be caught like the ten foolish virgins who were not watchful and slumbered and didn't know the spirit had left. Help us to be watchful in all things. As Paul told Timothy, be watchful in all things. <laughs> suffering, afflictions for the sake of Christ. Because afflictions are the test of our faith. And as each one here in different ways in their life go through these afflictions, help each one to stand there firm in their faith and continue serving you and laboring in love, O Lord. Thank you, Father, once again. for electing us, for choosing us. This work was begun by you. Therefore we have hope. As we surrender each day, you will finish the work which you have begun. Because you are not only the author of our faith, but you are also the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. So once again, this night, we commit ourselves into thy hands, O Lord, that thy will be done. In each one's life. Thank you, Father. You brought us safely to this place. And I pray you will take us home also. Safely. All glory and honor, power and praise. Belongs to thee. and thee alone, O Lord. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.